pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is uh, Matt. I'm a pastor here at City Reformed. It's good to be with you today. We're going to be dismissing children for Children's Church. They're going to be learning about uh, many things we do as a church with the idea that they can join and participate even more fully going forward. We're moving through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have before us an immense reading. It's very long. Um, two reasons it's long. First of all, um, I've preached through this before. Um, don't worry, I know most of you don't remember that. Uh, similar block of material in the Gospel of Luke uh, 13 years ago. And then this section, the Sermon on the Mount, we covered as a church about four years ago. Um, and uh, if you can remember anything, uh, I'll give you a prize afterwards. I'm not sure I remember much, but um, we did wrestle through this in greater detail. An entire semester spent on the Sermon on the Mount, really the most famous sermon of Jesus. Uh, with that in mind, we also notice that there are very key linguistic features in this text that hold it together. So even though it's long, we'll see a repetition of phrases. So uh, necessarily, we're going to be thinking big picture as we look at this passage uh, today, and we're going to be thinking about the big concern Jesus has as he interacts with the commands of God. How does Jesus deal with the, the moral commands in the law of God? We'll read the passage uh, now and then uh, move quickly. Uh, so... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, said Jesus. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until, the, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Christmas comes and we prepare for travels, uh, for me that means a, a visit to my hometown, my mother's house, and my mother's house almost inv inevitably features puzzles. There are regularly puzzles going on in the dining room. Uh, I often don't have patience uh, for puzzles myself, but as the, as the holiday unfolds, people will come in and work on Puzzles sometimes hard, sometimes easy. Um, I, I find the process difficult. Sometimes you, you find as you're doing a puzzle, a piece that just doesn't seem to fit well anywhere. Um, when when I, we were a little younger as a family, my kids would make uh, Christmas gifts for me, and one of them often was a, a homemade puzzle, um, which was a picture they drew cut into about 20 pieces, some big and some very little. And, uh, and sometimes you didn't even know exactly what you were trying to form. So you might have a, a tiny little white piece of paper and you're just not sure how it's going to fit in anywhere. The passage we're looking at today, this teaching of Jesus is clearly a block. It's a unit. Jesus is teaching about the law. But if we're honest, we recognize this is not only hard to understand, but it is a, at times a perplexing puzzle piece. How, how do we fit this in to the other things we know about Christianity? What do we do with this piece? Jesus begins this passage by talking about the law and his relationship to it. He says, I'm not going to abolish it, but fulfill it. When he uses the term law, he's referring to what we think of as the Old Testament, but particularly the moral commands given by God through the prophet Moses. He was a Jewish person speaking to Jewish people. They all understood these commands were guiding and directing their lives. Then Jesus goes on to describe how he interprets the law of Moses. There are five sections here where Jesus deals with different topics, and in each one he teach, takes the teaching 
of the law, the moral commands of God, and he makes them harder and more rigorous than people did before him. Jesus intensifies the, the commands of the law. And so we have to ask this question, why, why is he doing it? And how does this fit with everything I know? If you know just a little bit about Christianity, you might know that you know, Christianity relates to Jesus. Jesus relates to the cross. You may have heard people say things like, well, Jesus forgives you. Jesus loves you. There's grace and mercy. We've, we've sung about that in our songs. Jesus and grace. We would put those things together. And so it's surprising that when Jesus teaches, the words that he uses about the commands of God heighten and strengthen them to really an overwhelming level. How is this gracious? How is this good news that Jesus strengthens the moral commands of God? Uh, to use an analogy, you may imagine when you were, remember back to whenever you were young and, and uh, you were in school and you heard those great words in school, we have a substitute teacher. And because you would be thinking that means less work and maybe they don't know all the rules. And imagine how joyous the occasion would be when your, your friend leans over and says, oh, I know the substitute. She's really kind and gracious. And you're thinking, yes, this is, I hadn't done my homework anyway and I'm, I'm really feeling relieved today. And then your substitute teacher walks in and proceeds to take every rule the normal teacher had and makes it ten times harder. They said, not only are we having a quiz, we're having two quizzes. And someone walks in late and they get detention right away. And you might look over at your friend and say, this doesn't seem like a very gracious substitute teacher. This isn't my definition of gracious and kind. And that's the riddle that is the heart of this passage. It's actually a very challenging passage. It's more challenging than you probably realize in the history of the church, different theological systems have wrestled deeply with this. How do we think about the, the life of Jesus, his gracious words and deeds, his sacrificial self-giving on the cross, his resurrection power poured out for many? How do we relate that to his teaching, particularly here? I'll be speaking today from the Reformed tradition. In the interest of time, I'm not going to explain many number of things. Uh, some of you interested in theology might want to talk more. And quite simply this, the Reformed tradition refuses to separate the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. It says there is a goodness and a grace to be found even here when Jesus takes the law and makes it hard. We'll, we'll do three things today. First of all, we'll just look a little closer at the passage. I, I, I've generalized, but what does it mean that Jesus makes the law more rigorous? Secondly, we'll try and figure out how do we use that? How do we think about that? What, why is he doing that? And then third, we'll look quickly, and it will have to be quick, at the five examples Jesus gives of what a more rigorous teaching of the law is and how does that lead to grace? How does that lead to growth? How is it good news even when Jesus strengthens the commands? Um, so first of all, uh, looking at the passage, uh, Jesus intensifies the law. Uh, it may be even early on because Jesus was so quick to engage graciously with outsiders. Even at this early stage of his ministry, people may have begun to whisper and say, you know what, he's not really a very serious teacher of religion. 
And so when Jesus uh, brings this correction in the teaching, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. He may be offering a correction to sort of the, the word on the street. The other religious teachers saying, this guy, you know, he, he, he's always gracious to the outsiders. He must be just doing away with the law of Moses. And Jesus said the exact opposite. Verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first thing we want to notice here is Jesus says, I'm not doing away with these commands, but rather I am going to fulfill them. It's important for us to recognize that the interpretation of the passage will have to center around the idea that Jesus is fulfilling them, that his concern for the law is deeply connected with his concern that people know him, love him, and follow him. But the contrast here is with one who relaxes it. He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And he contrasts that with the one who hears and does. That's a very common theme in the teaching of Jesus. Will you hear me and do what I say? That's what he wants people to do. He says, uh, by by contrast, um, the one who hears these words and puts them into practice and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is concerned here that people not relax the laws, but rather, he says in verse 20, your righteousness, your right doing should exceed even the other religious leaders around you, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, known for their rigorous uh, religious interpretation and all of the details down, Jesus says, you must have a more rigorous righteousness. He's strengthening the commands of the law. Then what Jesus does is he goes on to take five principles from the law of Moses, what we would call the Old Testament, what the, the people in Jesus' day just called the Bible, um, particularly, though, from the first couple books of the Bible given through the prophet Moses. He takes and he deals with five, five topics. Three of them are actually from the Ten Commandments. And each of these commandments, Jesus takes the teaching and he interprets it more strictly than the people were used to. He says, you have heard it said, seems to imply he's talking about the way they've heard this taught before. All right, so what does he start with? He, he starts with the command of murder. This is the, uh, the sixth commandment. I have to count my fingers to make sure I'm right. Um, uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. He says, you shall not murder. Now, at this point, many people in the audience, like you, might be saying, I think I've gotten that one down. I have not actually killed anyone. Um, but Jesus said, uh, don't be so quick. He takes this, this law that we, that we think about in the most blatant way about actually taking the life of another person. And he says, when you hate someone in your heart, you are guilty of breaking this commandment. And most vividly in this, in this teaching, Jesus takes something that many people probably can convince themselves they hadn't actually done. And he takes the command and he presses it home in a way that it, at the end of it, everyone says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He says, when you hate someone in your heart, you are breaking the command. He's taking it and he's making it more rigorous. And all of his teaching flows out of it. He urges them to seek reconciliation. Don't be content with broken relationships, but seek reconciliation. 
Secondly, Jesus moves to another command. The, the next commandment in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And again, many people might start off by saying, well, I haven't actually done that. Um, a larger number of us would say pretty quickly, dang, I feel guilty here. And Jesus presses it home in a way where everyone starts to feel guilty. He says it's not just your outward expression, but your inward thought, the inward working of your heart. He's strengthening it so deeply. And he moves then to a sort of a subcategory. He speaks uh, in the context of marriage and sexuality. He speaks of divorce. And he takes what was an Old Testament limit on divorce and he strengthens that as well. Uh, the background context uh, for that is Deuteronomy 24. It, it's a passage that allowed divorce more broadly in the Old Testament Testament, but limited it in a particular case. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus reduces the limitations. He's, he's, he's increasing the weight and the demand of the law. Uh, the third topic he looks at again, he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. It's the same formula in each of these five places. In the third place, he deals with how we speak. And it could refer to a number of Old Testament passages, but probably refers to, again, one of the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not lie. It seemed to be a practice of many people in the time of Jesus uh, to be very concerned with taking oaths. Uh, and they wanted to know, which oaths do I really have to keep? If you want to convince someone that you're telling the truth, you could say, you could, you could take an oath on yourself and say, if I'm wrong, cross my heart and hope to die. Right? We, we still hear echoes of this today. Uh, I had a friend growing up who, who took oaths all the time, and he would say things like, uh, uh, I will tear up a stack of Bibles if I'm lying to you. Okay? That's not really a good idea. Um, but he was, he was trying to underscore his truthfulness. Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's taking this common practice, and he's, he's dealing with this, the topic of truthfulness, and he's applying it more rigorously. And Jesus says, listen, stop asking the question, with which oaths do I have to keep? And why don't you practice truthfulness? It's not just the extreme oaths, people who say, do I have to swear by the throne on heaven or by God? Which do I have to keep? And Jesus says, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. In other words, the calling of truthfulness should be applied in every category. The, the reason that we take oaths, if you've, if you've ever said, you know, cross my heart and hope to die... It's probably because people don't think you're telling the truth. The reason we take oaths is our normal pattern of speech is all too often one where we conceal and distort the truth. Fourth example of, of Jesus uh, heightening the, uh, the law is dealing with the principle of retribution. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 38. Now, what, was, what is being given here is generally understood to be a principle of justice for Israel as a nation. And as a principle of justice in the civil sphere, it's actually very good and important. It tells us our retribution must be limited. The human impulse is to have excessive retribution. But what would you think, just to be honest, if someone did something that, where your eye was damaged or removed? In, in your dark moments, as your anger wells up, you would want excessive retribution. You'd want to take not just their eye, but their head. 
This principle limits retribution, but Jesus takes that limit and strengthens it. He says, I'm limiting it far further than this. He calls them not to seek retribution at all. Again, the questions are rising up in your head at this point. This is a particularly hard teaching. But it's important we see what he's doing. He's intensifying the demands of the law. He goes on to say, don't refuse anyone who asks you for something. That's an extreme intensification. The final place, Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then, but I say to you, in verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the command to love your neighbor is found in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19 says you shall love your neighbor. But what seemed to have been happening in the time of Jesus is people were looking for some big loopholes. And they would say something not found in the text, love your, enemy, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. Jesus closes that loophole. He says the principle of neighborly love applies to everyone, not just the people that are close to you. He says it's pretty normal for all people to love those that love them. But your Father in heaven brings love to all people. He brings the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. You are mirroring him. To think back to the text from the the prior passage, you are a light of the world as you reveal God's character in this way when you love even those who are your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, says Jesus. And then he summarizes this all in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see the problem, don't you? I mean, Jesus, at the end of it, if there's any mistake at all, he raises it like to the umpteenth level. He's, he's got, you know, one to ten. He's taking it to level 11 here. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So you see the puzzle, right? How is this good news? How is it good news that Jesus has given us such a rigorous explanation of the character of God and of his moral demands? This is a puzzling piece. In the history of the church, people have have, uh, taken many shortcuts at this point. And sometimes they would say, all right, we've got the, the life of Jesus, grace, truth, love, forgiveness, And we have the teaching of Jesus, rigorous command, and they just opt for one or the other. Some people would say, listen, if we know Jesus forgives us on the cross, then he's probably not really serious here. We just sort of quietly push it aside. Or others have gone the opposite direction, and they've said, these are the words of Jesus. In my Bible, they're in red letters. This is what's really important. If you miss this, you miss everything. And the the cross and the resurrection fall to the background. Friends, if we have the teaching of Jesus without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have good news. And nothing highlights that more than this passage. This will kill you and crush you if you don't see grace and mercy coming from the life and ministry of Jesus. As I mentioned before, the Reformed tradition refuses to do either of those two. It holds them together. And so we've got to find a a harder solution here. And we have to, in the process, wrestle more carefully with what's really happening in this passage. What is Jesus doing? We kept some of the prior verses in italics to remind you of the content 
Remember that Jesus uh, is introduced as one by Matthew who preaches the kingdom of God and calls people to repentance. Secondly, we know that the Sermon on the Mount is introduced as teaching for the disciples. So as we begin to explore what we can do with this positively, how do we think about the passage, we begin by by noting that Jesus is preaching about the kingdom and he's calling people in the kingdom to relate to himself. I believe the most important verse in all of this section is where Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. You may remember in last week's, and we talked about the teaching on the kingdom, that the central thing for us to remember is that you can't have the kingdom without the king. That if we try to take this kingdom teaching and apply it to the world in general, beyond relationship with Jesus, we distort the importance and the meaning of the passage. In other words, if we try to come to the Sermon on the Mount or to Jesus' teaching on the law and we separate it from his call of discipleship to walk in relationship with himself, we have not good news but crushingly bad news. We also notice as we go further and look at it and begin to think about it a little bit that Jesus isn't here giving a general guideline on how to live apart from himself. In fact, this isn't really a general ethic at all. Let me point out in just a quick thought experiment as we look at it. Jesus said, you should not be angry. Or he, more technically, he says, you will be liable to judgment. In other words, there's a type of anger that can make us liable to judgment. A quick reading of the passage would make us think Jesus said never get angry, except for the fact that Jesus himself got angry. Later in the book of this very gospel, Jesus will take a whip and cleanse the temple. Sounds angry to me. And he will speak to the religious leaders with a harsh rebuke, calling them blind fools. Now, how do we relate that to what he warns us about here? We we simply notice he's not intending here to give us a general teaching on everything we know about anger. He's not teaching us everything we know about divorce. He's not teaching us everything we know about how to use our words truthfully. We might say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, but we can all think of circumstances where it's a little more complicated. On the extreme end, if you're hiding someone in your house, you think of the Christians in countries overcome by Nazi Germany, you're hiding someone in your house and they knock on the door and say, do you have them in there? Are you hiding Jews in your house? And Christians say, well, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or on the, on the other end of the spectrum, we know blatant, bald honesty isn't always loving. You all know the correct answer to the question, how does this dress make me look? Right? The, the, it's not falsehood, but your, your, your truthfulness is couched very carefully in love for others. Jesus isn't giving us a general ethic for everything to do. One final example, think about it. Jesus said, if someone asks for your inner tunic, give them your outer tunic as well. We know most people wore two pieces of clothing. Right? A literal interpretation of this passage would imply that all of the followers of Jesus end up naked. And they've given away everything. I mean, these are real problems. But what if, 
what I think is the case. Jesus isn't telling us everything we want to know about any of these topics, but he's telling them about how we draw close to him in the hardest parts of our life. In other words, the kingdom message is about kingdom disciples. That what Jesus is doing here is showing us how we draw close to him in the really hard parts of our life. There's two ways we do it. The first is when we come to the law and see that we fall short, we have a pathway to Jesus. One of the reasons why we might think we don't really need the gospel, why we don't really need Jesus, why we really can run our own show and live our own life is because we think we're not really that bad. As, as Naaman mentioned in his, his little amusing story, like the boy who's dropped all the toys onto himself, we said, well, I kind of did it, but I'm not nearly as bad as my neighbor. And it's really mostly my parents' fault anyway. And, you know, I'm not so sure we can really say this is wrong. As long as we do that, we don't need Jesus. So the first thing Jesus does is he, he heightens the demands of the law. He shows us the true implications of God's moral character. After all, the true standard is not something we create, but it is summarized again and again in the Bible. Be perfect as God is perfect. It's his character. If you want to say, I'm okay before God, then you have to say, I'm like God. And Jesus said, are you really? In each of these commands, Jesus gives us a window into repentance. You see, when we hold the teaching of Jesus together with the life and the ministry of Jesus, the heightened demands of the law, a heightened call of repentance is really good news. Jesus introduces everything by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If we know, I've got to turn my direction, I need help, I need a savior, we are now in place to receive the good news. Jesus is graciously removing all of our obstacles that we could come to him in dependence and trust. The second thing Jesus is doing is he, he expands our vision is he's challenging our moral imagination. What does it mean to, to be good? God, the Bible tells us God gives so much grace into our lives that he can forgive our sins, not based on anything we've done, but by faith alone that no one could boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But God's grace is so deep and abundant that he's prepared good works for us to walk in. He's preparing us to actually begin to live differently, to be, as Jesus said, a light to the world, a city set on a hill. He's challenging our moral imagination. Have you ever seen someone love their neighbors in a way that was so compelling and beautiful that it caught your attention? Have you ever seen that happen? I remember hearing a story not long ago, I don't remember the exact context, but a, a man who had come to faith, faith in a, a tribal village, I believe it was in North Africa, and the, the, the group of people in his village were Muslim. He began to speak of his faith to those in his family, and the neighbors beat him up and threw him outside of the village, and he got up, and he came back, and he started telling them about Jesus. And they beat him up again, and they threw him out and he got up and he came back again. 
Now, we don't want to point out here, if we're thinking about a general ethic, that the Bible does pe give people permission to run away when they're beat up. But in this case, it was the third time he went back that those fellow villagers, those friends and family who had knew, known him all his life, they saw him coming back the third time and they said, something different's happening here and we want to listen. You see, what Matthew is telling us here in the words of Jesus is that in this heightened call of these commandments, we not only see our need for a Savior, but we see the beauty of our Savior. I mean, we begin to see a picture of a life that is different and beautiful in a way we hadn't been able to imagine. This, after all, is, is not a surprise. It's not new. If you were to glance at the back of your sermon insert, you would see the reading from Colossians chapter 3, and we'd notice it's exactly what the rest of the New Testament does. You are in Christ by faith, therefore die to sin and live to righteousness. Put on new, new ways of living and take off what you used to do. We would find that map so carefully and so clearly into this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me close by just thinking practically about it. How can we use it in that way here? Well, think with me about his first command, anger. What would happen if we stopped making excuses for our anger? And we know there is a category of righteous anger where our anger flows not from our selfishness, but of legitimate concern for others. But rather than... than trying to make the broad principle of everything we could think about anger. What if we did the main thing, which is to notice most of the time we're not angry like that. Most of the time we're angry because someone's hurt us, someone's threatened us. We are at risk in losing something that, we, that really matters. And if we don't lash out, they might take even more. What if we began to view our anger as a window to see Jesus what if we saw in our anger an opportunity to entrust to God those things we can't control? An opportunity to love even when it's difficult to seek to be like Jesus. I was trying to think of examples and analogies for these different ideas. Ones that showed the beauty of living differently. The primary example is Jesus himself. Yes, there were occasions where his righteous concern for God's glory and the oppression of others did express itself angrily, but Jesus gave himself for us in his death on the cross. He, he, he confronted the religious leaders and the civil authorities, and he did not lash out in anger. He did not kill, but he gave himself over for us. Jesus also directs us to uh, personal and painful areas concerned with sexuality, marriage, and the important relationships tied to it. He doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. The Apostle Paul lists another exception uh, to marriage and divorce. I, I don't think that's the point. Jesus is saying, here's the place you can encounter me. I know for me personally, it was here that I, I most quickly, most powerfully came to see I need help. Many of us in the church can recognize today how quickly our sin is exposed as we hear the righteous demands of the law. 
Many of us find that it's in the most intimate relationships of our marriage where our sin is revealed. And Jesus is, is tightening down on the easy escape hatch that gets us away. What if we saw in this the way in which Jesus is drawing us to himself? What if we saw in this place, the place where Jesus was saying, this is how much you need me. This is why I gave myself on the cross. Jesus described his people as being a, a faithless and spiritually adulterous generation. And he loved them fully and completely. I know this doesn't solve all of the hard challenges that we're facing, but it is the, the call of Christ in these personal places, in our truthfulness, when we've been offended. Where are you desiring retribution in your life? I got an outrageous ticket the other day. It was a ridiculous ticket, and the cost was outrageous, and I was so indignant. I was plotting my revenge on the city. <laughs> it was good, too. Except I was reading Matthew, and Jesus was speaking to me. And uh, he just showed me every impulse of my heart is exactly the wrong direction. Jesus is not saying that we put up with every unjust situation around us. Love for others means sometimes we have to challenge unjust situations. He's not providing a one-size-fits-all ethic, but he's saying in the place where you're offended, where you're slapped, where you're mistreated, where your enemies are persecuting you, that is the place where I show up. That is the place you can live differently. That is the place where you can see me and live out my love for others. Friends, in the midst of your own suffering, you have a chance to follow Jesus and to know him more intimately. The Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Where in your life are you able to love your enemies? Which groups of people, perhaps, in our country are you most likely to call your enemy you're ready to dismiss them and cut them off and forget about them. Except that Jesus actually won't let you do that. Don't give up your concern for justice and your concern for a better system. We know that's important. Are you doing it as you love your enemies? Does your dialogue in the office and the things you write online reflect this call and this ethic? Friends, you will fall short if you are not seeking grace and the power of God's spirit. But it's there in the place of our vulnerability and our weakness where Jesus closes the door and raises the demands that our heart is revealed and he expands our vision of what's possible. Oh God, help me to live differently. Having been loved by Jesus, who on the cross prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Shows us not only the pathway to our forgiveness, but he expands our vision of how we live for Jesus in the world around us. Let's close in prayer.